You're listening to the World Radio Day podcast series on SOAS Radio. Hello and welcome. This is Mia Liner speaking for SOAS Radio. We're here with our third podcast of the World Radio Day podcast series 2018. And I'm very pleased to have two guests in the studio with me. Jose Gigante, um, who's project manager at Y Sport and also an experienced sports and education consultant. He'll tell us more about that. And also Simon Rofe, reader here at SOAS as part of the International Studies and Diplomacy program focusing on sports and diplomacy. Welcome. Thank you very it's much good for having us. It's a pleasure. So first of all, Jose, can you give me a little bit background about what you do? Um, my name is Jose Gigante and I work for Ysport, uh, which is an amazing uh, small organization. Uh, I work with three rock stars, uh, as I call them, uh, Sally Hancock, uh, the lady who was behind the sponsorship of the Lloyd's TSB Bank of the Paralympic Games in London. Uh, another rock star is Sally uh, Horrocks, uh, which was the lady behind some of the biggest deals in women's football and the creation of the new league, TV rights, etc. A former um, national player of uh, netball. And Tatiana Haney, uh, who has been uh, leading in FIFA uh, women's football and uh, big events for FIFA uh, for many years. So I'm just someone behind those three amazing women uh, trying to, to learn a lot about women's sport and also f- uh, feel uh, how men can feel in a, in a women's sport uh, uh, side of, of, of life. That's great. Thank you. I wanted to talk to you about sports, obviously, um, because the this year's World Radio Day theme is about radio and sports, media and sports. And we would like to kind of talk about sports as more than just a game. So what's happening globally at the moment? How come that big sports events nowadays attracts such huge sponsorship um how did sports become such a big attraction thanks for the question um these days uh, sport isn't is a business and and it's a global business and that's why uh big brands and big sponsors are coming on board to try to get visibility in these big events unfortunately uh, the way fans and sport fans uh, consume uh, sport is changing and so it's not anymore about having your coca-cola logo in a big uh, Olympic or Paralympic event or the World Cup, they also have to communicate to fans in different ways. And that's uh, through social media, uh, through different OTT platforms or digital platforms. Uh, they show uh, the games. And that's that's the, that's the fan base is changing and how they consume sports. So brands, uh, big brands, are trying to get to, to these people. And they need to put themselves into these big events. Otherwise, unless they are very uh, good at social media, uh, they cannot get to the fans that they really want to target and consume their products. Thanks. Um, thinking about sport has become such a global phenomenon. And that's really what in- engages me as a scholar, as well as a fan, self-confessed fan of sport. Because there's nothing that communicates to so many people around the world so effectively as sport, be it uh, an Olympic 100 metres final or the World Cup final or the Super Bowl, which we have on Sunday. All of these events are you know, touch people in a way that other forms of communication can't and in ways that you know those with political messages or products to sell want to be able to access them. And that's why sport is such a you know a pervasive feature of modern society. It lends itself in many ways to 
you know, business because there's opportunities for branding, there's opportunities for sponsorship, there's opportunities for product placement. So all of these sort of business transactions can, you know, be associated with, you know, the sporting endeavour, the, the running of the race, the scoring of the goal, um, whatever it may be. All of them have a potential. Now, the question then becomes around what's the relationship between those business interests and the sort of pure athletic endeavour. Jose, you just said, unfortunately, the consumption of sport has changed. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? And why is it unfortunate? Um, I mean, if you look at across the board, uh, sports that they're uh, and who is following them, uh, unless you're looking at surfing or uh, parkour uh, or women's football, uh, you don't have huge numbers of uh, fans increasing. It's older generations who are still following football, who are still following cricket, who are still following boxing and traditional sports. Uh, so there is a new wave of uh, sports that are coming into the into the market at the moment, and they're uh, taking the attention of the young young generations. Uh, but at the same time, we have the traditional sports who still uh, want to get attention, but they're not getting numbers unless they look at people who are over 40 uh, or more. And that's all, that also has an impact on what kind of brands they want to engage with them uh, with these sports. Uh, so if you look at uh, what um, you know, women's football or surfing are doing in terms of uh, how do they uh, invest or where do they look at, they look at social media to, to engage with, uh, with brands and with fans. Uh, so this is completely changing the way uh, we consume sports. I and mean, I think the, the changing nature of the fan base reflects the fact that the fans aren't only in the stadiums now or you know, wherever they uh, may have consumed sport in the past, on the back page of a newspaper. You're consuming sport in so many different ways as a fan now, through your social media platforms, through you know, any number of different devices, through you know, advertisements and sponsorship uh, opportunities. All of these are different ways that you know, the consumer of sports is perhaps a, a better way of considering you know, those who are watching sport in the 21st century rather than the fan who spent you know, all week saving up to walk down to the ground at the end of his road, so to speak. That's not the typical sporting experience now. And you know, in business terms, it's not where the market is. It's not where the money is. Yep. And, and the NFL in London is one of the biggest examples. Um, as you know, they're going to be playing in a new built stadium that is going to be uh, tailored to the needs of the, the American football, which is something I haven't seen before in sport, that uh, a foreign sport comes to your own country and, and, and allows uh, the sport to be involved in the construction of a specific sport that is not traditional in this country. So you, you can see how things are changing and uh, the impact and the influences that uh, sport has, uh, especially uh, sports like their big, big, big entertainment sports like NFL. Wouldn't that support um, the business idea of sport that it's such a big industry now that the NFL that has so much money and influence can allow to come to the UK and build a stadium? I mean, I think what I think is interesting in that sense is that it's an NFL as a private members club, effectively, in the United States, is engaged in another transaction with a, a private entity as you know, Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. And that is not a, uh, it, it, a function of the United, the United States and the United Kingdom, but a, a, you know, a modern day business transaction. Now, it's branded, you know, not uh, incessantly in some senses in the United, uh, from the NFL's point of view, with United States flags and patriotism. To a far lesser degree, you know, UK football is has that, um, you know, U UK identity. Not least because 
many of the players are international and the product is sold more internationally. And indeed, the, the uh, contracts for the Premier League overseas are just gigantic. It's a four billion pounds contract for, for rights to uh, broadcast overseas. So the, the, the sort of coming together of a distinctly national product in the NFL, albeit one transposed to a different country, and a more international product being the host to that national product. As a scholar of diplomacy, uh, that those transactions are really fascinating and really speak to the sort of core elements of diplomacy as communication, representation and negotiation as being to arrive at that situation. And it's always an ongoing iterative process. So let's talk more about that international relations between countries and how that relates to sport. Can you tell us a bit more? How do nations relate to international sport events? I mean, there's at least two ways of thinking about it. And one is the sort of diplomacy of sport. So that's by having an international fixture. So the oldest international fixture in football was England against Scotland. So at that point, you have two national identities, albeit within one uh, country in the United Kingdom, playing a game against each other. And there's a there's an, an opportunity there for, you know, um, sharing of uh, awareness of different cultural practices, different national practices. And you can put that into other environments. So if you think in the France 98 uh, FIFA World Cup, Iran played the United States. Now, Iran and the United States don't have formal diplomatic relations, and they haven't since 1979. But within the confines of a football pitch in Saint-Étienne, I would call, um, 11 representatives of the United States played 11 representatives of Iran. Now, that is a diplomatic transaction. Now, the consequences of that may not have been to, um, you know, warm relations to the point that formal diplomatic relations were re-established, but it did provide a, a, a focus, a dialogue and imagery that matters. You know, the shaking hands, Iranians and um, American footballers shaking hands. Now, that can only happen, to my mind, and why it fascinates me, in the realm of sport. You wouldn't find that in other walks of life. And that's where sport can work you know, it's magic to a degree. You the situation currently with regard to the Winter Olympics, you have South Koreans and North Koreans agreeing to um, walk under a common flag within the Olympic um, um, parameters of a Winter Olympic Games. Now, these two countries are still technically at war. There is a lot of tension in that area and a lot of tension manifest in other things such as missile tests on behalf of the North Koreans. Um, but nonetheless, through sport... They will walk together, um, you know, for, for the first time in, you know, at least three years, North Koreans and South Korean delegates met um, to uh, agree this um, deal. And, you know, that's going to happen next week. So it's a really exciting time for looking at sport and diplomacy. I completely agree with, with Simon. And, and I mean, it's obvious that um, one big element of, of sport these days for countries is how they use it as a, a, a mean for a soft power uh, in the mm. world yep. and, and and probably Simon could give you a better definition of, of soft power than I can uh, but but the way I see it is uh, everyone likes to align with uh, with success so any country will try to get as many medals as possible so their uh, population aligns with with the country and everyone is behind it it's just but you know uh, seeing uh, tournaments being won and and medals to be to be achieved. So I don't know what your thing uh, your thinking is, Simon. But I think that you speak to a, a sort of um, fundamental truth about soft power is that people want to be liked, and you know, being part of a successful team, being part of a successful sort of atmosphere around a sporting event is one way that you can 
you know, have a, a bond with, you know, fellow humans, um, which you can't have through other means. And, you know, it's something that, you know, businessmen want to be able to tap into sell stuff and politicians will want to be able to, you know, bottle effectively the sort of feel good factor so they can, you know, use it for whatever political ends they may have. But you, you do have a quality in soft power of attraction. And that's the real thing. You want to be part of something. It's not that it's, you know, you're being forced into it. It's actually you want to be part of this experience. You want to share the, you know, the the joy of a, a winning goal or, a, um, you know, a, a, a race that's won. And and that's really where sport can talk to people in ways that, you know, that they don't need any words. You don't need to be able to speak the competitor's language. You don't need to, be able to speak the language of the, um, you know, uh, the place that the uh, event's taking place. But you can share in that experience. Absolutely agree with with Simon. I think that's a good good um, illustration of uh, what a sport can can do for for diplomacy and also for power, bringing people together that then they would never uh, come together in in any other uh, place in in the world. Um, yeah, I was about to mention the North Korea South Korea example as we have the Winter Games starting next Friday, Friday. in yeah. Pyeongchang in South Korea and I um, I read an article that uh, North Korea had failed to uh, submit a lot of their athletes but they were extending the deadline so I think yeah what you said is it's really interesting about how sport can be this kind of exception to everything else that happens that can happen that is happening politically i think what that also illustrates is that the the regime which accepts those applications as it were you know the international olympic committee and the international paralympic committee are themselves constructs of you know certain sort of um, power and interest that you know can be you know um, flexible on the one hand and can be sort of hardline on the other so you, you have you know it, it's a it's a governance structure that is agreed upon as a function of diplomacy so that's really the sort of second part it's not the the venue that you know people are inside the stadium and talking to each other but actually that you have to agree on the rules of the game to get there you have to agree on the size of the pitch the length of the race that's a process of negotiation and whilst they're often manifest in national you know, Paralympic or uh, international, uh, sorry, Olympic committees or football federations. There are national football federations that agree on the conduct of a tournament. There are national athletics federations that agree on, you know, the, the when and the how of uh, tournaments, uh, mega events are going to be hosted. So in each of these cases, there's a form of negotiation also. And that's more the sort of sport as diplomacy. You're talking there about how sport is the means to achieve uh, a diplomatic end. Jose, you used to work with the International Paralympic Committee. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your experiences um, within sports and diplomacy in that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's it's a, it's a, an amazing uh, organization to to be part of, and I learned so much. And especially at the time when the organization was going through a growth and uh, professionalization uh, time, uh, it's at that same time that the IPC started to build in uh, a whole team of in-house media and social media team to really put those athletes out, uh, educate people about what a Paralympic uh, sport is and what the Paralympic movement is about. Uh, so it was really exciting, uh, exciting to be part of that. At that time, I, I, I had I had the chance and, and the luck to, to attend to the London 2012 uh, Paralympic Games and as well to the Sochi Paralympic uh, Games in uh, in Russia in 2014, and just to be part of this, what uh, Simon was saying before, this 
uh, structure that uh, literally uh, it's in a different country organizing something uh, that is being seen around the world uh, and the consequences of those medals or, or those events uh, could have in society. I think that's uh, very important and, and something that, for example, for the International Paralympic Committee and something that uh, obviously I was proud of to be part of that is when sport can help break barriers. And in Russia, there was a big, big, big uh, change in mentality uh, and also in infrastructure changes to help uh, any person with a disability to just be part of the society. Uh, so no matter what you think about the sporting side of it, but I think that's a big uh, achievement of the of the Paralympic movement and the International Paralympic Committee. Uh, so that was that was that was uh, something that I was proud to be part of uh, at the time. I mean, I think that speaks to sports capability and um, the possibility of changing society not just you know particular aspects so you talk there about um, you know the barriers that um, those with disabilities have faced in the past and how the IPC can help that but sport can also help in regard to you know other forms of, of discrimination with regard to race and gender um, and you know actually as a, as a platform that gives you know huge opportunity for those issues and you know in various different societies around the world they're you know treated very differently but these are all f features of society and they're all features of sports men and women who undertake this and all features of the people who watch and consume sport. So whatever your particular concern about a, a you know an issue of race perhaps actually sport is a has the opportunity to give a platform to that. What you do with it is up to you know the, the you know the the context of that particular sort of issue but you do have the opportunity with sport to talk to across issues that you don't talk about otherwise. I completely agree with Simon and I think we are right now in a very, very important uh, moment in time uh, when, for example, uh, women's football, it's becoming a very popular sport, uh, a moment where sponsors really want to engage with uh, community sport. Uh, it's not all about uh, the number of eyeballs and big numbers that you can get. Uh, it's also getting important in society and for younger generations, how much impact the sport could really have in the, in the ground. And uh, just a few days ago, uh, uh, there was a massive uh, agreement between a bank here in the UK called TSB and a charity which uh, was created at the back of London 2012 called Sported. And they decided to come together because they believe that there is value on uh, on using community sport to, to help society. And I think this is, is we're, we're now in that moment in time where uh, sport has been important and it's been a good economic growth. But uh, uh, Young generations, they demand uh, sport to do more than just um, being an entertainment or, or, or a show. There was a recent BBC documentary about how uh, women's football in the UK was more um, popular than men's football in the 20s. I think that shows that the media has a big role in it, but there's a big erasure of of these you know, gender issues, for example, and how sponsorship or business that, that supports certain type of sport, that sport will, of course, grow. Basically, how do you grow specific type of sports where there's no money? It's a, it's a very good question, and we uh, and the company Wherefore uh, they're leading in this uh, development of the commercial side of women's sport. And, and just to give you an example, uh, something that uh, you you could hear from someone uh, working for a City Football Group, which uh, is the overarching umbrella of a Manchester City uh, women's football club. Um, 
they're so proud about their women's team uh, that they recently launched a campaign saying uh, we are the same team. And no matter if you support the women's or the men's, we are the same team. And and, and we're now in that, that particular moment in time uh, where brands, they're starting to, to realize that even if... Uh, uh, women's football, for example, doesn't have uh, the same number of followers, the same number of uh, attendances, uh, the same number of sponsors. Uh, it's, uh, it's It has a massive value in, in, in the community. It has a massive value for the fans of that particular club. And, and it's helping uh, women to be recognized the uh, same as, as men in, in, in sport and in football as it should be. And, and it's helping young children to be able to, to say that, well, football is for everyone uh, because I can see women are even playing a Champions League, for example. Uh, and I think this is thanks to a few uh, brands and a few uh, governing bodies. And one example is UEFA that launched recently a campaign uh, called Together We Play Strong, uh, encouraging uh, girls, young girls, to share uh, their experiences playing football with the world, uh, to, to, to say to the world that it's right to play football, and, and this is how I do it, and I want to sh- share this with everyone. Uh, here in the UK, uh, also Sport England has been running the This Girl campaign uh, for a few years now, and it has a, a massive impact, I think, on how we perceive women doing sport. Uh, when you ask some about, for example, women's uh, men's football or women's football. Uh, usually, the, the answer I hear is, women's football uh, is hard to find, and men's football is everywhere. So we need to start by educating kids from 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 young age that the sport is for everyone. Uh, we need to uh, uh, train and teach uh, journalists to to be to understand women's sport as well. So we need more women uh, journalists, and I think we need to educate as well brands and media and how the value of sponsoring or trying to help a sport, women's sport, uh, has in the society. And, and I think we're right now in the, in the right moment in, in, in time. I certainly think, you know, Jose's got very practical experience on that. But the what, um, you know, the, the, if you look at the sort of narrative of how sport has evolved, it has always been part of a power structure to varying degrees. Now, there, there's a long-standing uh, history of, you know, how British sport was part of its colonial um sort of patronage, if you like, and spread through the world on that basis. So, you know, sports that were big in the former uh, British colonies, such as cricket and rugby, you know, followed in that way, vested in, you know, the um, the British army and other features of society through the public school systems that um, the UK had in the 18th and 19th uh, centuries. But equally, there's a a, perhaps a more focused... um, business orientated model that we can look at from the United States. So the NFL is one, but also Major League Baseball, the NBA, uh, that's National Basketball Association. Uh, Both of these sports have, you know, in in their time, taken a particular product from a national area and taken it to the world. Now, that doesn't mean the world has always been receptive to those sports. But there are things you can do. And if you look at the way that the sort of corporate social responsibility of some of these big leagues now. So the NBA Cares program on behalf of the NBA, but also the global NBA. There's a, there's a there's perhaps a tension, and some people might consider it a hypocrisy, um, of you know wanting to help commu- local communities, but also wanting to sell them products. So you know, that we shouldn't be blind to that. But these are 
the realities of contemporary society and they're not unique to sport in that way either so you know that's the same for other multinational sort of uh, enterprises you know, McDonald's or mm-hmm. Coca-Cola or what have you uh, both of whom happen to be um, big sporting sponsors again with no perhaps little irony but actually to what extent are you know those organizations able to exert an influence on the governance of sport so during the FIFA crisis you know one of their concerns was that they would lose these major sponsors and you know the likes of Coca-Cola and Adidas and and what have you are multi multi million pounds uh, contributors to organizations like FIFA Maybe one last question, and um, this is going in in that direction already, but we've talked uh, uh, about sports in an international um, context in quite a rosy way, you know, it can help diplomacy, but there can also be a lot of tensions, corruption in FIFA, how uh, international sports organizations exploit countries. Do you have any examples on the more difficult sides of sports and diplomacy? Well, you can, the sort of stereotypical answer there is to point to the football war between Honduras and El Salvador in 1969, where uh, due to a World Cup qualifier, a war, you know, full-on war broke out. Now, there's a little bit more to it, and there's a lot of history to Honduras and El Salvador relations, but nonetheless, there are instances, and you could point to a number of occurrences where security has been a you know strong feature. The 1972 uh, Olympics in Munich were targeted, um, as we know. The uh, Paris Stade de France was targeted in the attacks on uh, the city, um, and you know that was deflected away from a sporting uh, venue to uh, another um, uh, target, as it were. Um, but there are examples, you know, of sport does have a darker underside, and 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 not least, you know, the the way that sport can be you know, can challenge our our morals in that sense. So, you know, the narrative around Lance Armstrong and it's not about the bike and how he overcame cancer to win the Tour de France seven times, you know, is so corrupted by his admission subsequently and only subsequently once he got caught of, you know, uh, abuse of the rules. Now, it you know, just listening to him is, is, you know, sort of troubling in that regard to me as an individual, given what he'd stood for before so the representation that he had i, I think that is spot on simon and i think we we, we can see how those examples like lance Armstrong, are having an impact uh in and and things are happening and the, the international olympic committee is launching their own anti-doping um agency they cannot rely anymore for example on countries having their own agencies and being governed by by overarching umbrella um sport is becoming more professional, it's becoming cleaner, uh, but it's going to take time. And that's also because of the structures that traditional politicians uh, been involved in in sport that created the sport to be the way it is today. But I think with the younger generations asking for for change and for a social impact, uh, sport is going gonna, is gonna to change. Jose Gigante and Simon Rove, thank you very much for being here. Thank you, thank you so much for having us. You're listening to the World Radio Day podcast series on SOAS Radio. Radio.